Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, my name is Mark Leppard, MBE, and I'm the headmaster of the British School Alcobirat in Abu Dhabi. And I'm delighted to hand you over uh, to the Inspiring Leadership Series hosted by the inspirational and charming Jonathan Bowman Hurst. Mark, now I know why you're so successful. Very kind of you. And it's Julian Brammer, an old friend of mine who did airborne training with myself, James Bashel, and David Hudson, who've all been on the show. Uh, who spoke so highly of you. It's all, it's all about recommendations. I get these um, agencies who, who say, I, I want to I you know, sell this guy to you. I'm getting paid to push. And I don't work on that basis. I work on the basis that people find others inspirational. And Julian's a really good man and uh, you know, has known you for a while and recommended you. So, so Mark, tell us about the school, what you're doing now. Uh, and we'll go back and talk a bit about your history. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, as mentioned, I'm, I'm currently headmaster of the British School Alcobirat, which is the only British embassy school in the UAE. Uh, it's 52 years old, so it's one of the oldest. It's actually older than the UAE. Um, it's run on a not-for-profit basis, uh, meaning that any surplus that we get is piled back into the school. So we're, we're currently about to embark on a new build, uh, so an exciting time. Um, it's got outstanding academic results, but it also what I'm really proud of is it provides a truly holistic education. So we have students um, experiences through the co-curricular program, through the classroom, all those areas. And it's um, a fantastic school to work at. And, I, and I'm saying fantastic school because I've also had my three children educated here, which I'm really proud of. That, that's really nice. And, and that's always a good reflection. My uh, <laughs> ex-wife and I put our two girls through the Mount School in York. Uh, where she's still the, the deputy principal there and doing a great job. Uh, and, and they benefited so much from that. Not only there's a financial um, uh, benefit because you're teaching there, but, but also if it's good enough for you, it must be good enough for your children. And if it's not good enough for your children, wh why are you still teaching there? There's that, that famous uh, keeper test that you should do for all your staff uh, in the book, um, No Rules Rules by Reed Hastings about Netflix. And he says that... Um, if, if one of your teachers was to say they were going to go to another school, would you fight hard to keep them? And if the answer is no, the question is, why have you still got them in your school? And perhaps you could help them find their happiness elsewhere. But uh, that's a, a good story. So, yeah, um, must be amazing being in uh, Abu Dhabi, the UAE. How, how long have you been out there? What's, what, tell us a bit about the place and how you find it. Yeah, it's, um, I've, I've been I'm in my seventh year. Um, and I'm, I love it here. I've been in the Middle East for 25 years. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. I was in Qatar for 19 at a school called Doha College. I was uh, head there for the, the last nine of those, uh, those years. Um, I just love the region, uh, the people. I find it very, very interesting, really diverse, um, hugely welcoming. So when, when we arrived in the UAE, the, uh, the Emirati families came to me and said, welcome to our home, you are part of our family. And I, I generally, their culture like that is very, very welcome. And it, and it does date back to the Bedouin days where travelers would, would arrive at their, their camps and 
if you arrive, you were that, that camp's responsibility. Uh, and the families really do take that seriously and still carry on that tradition today. So it's, it's fantastic for us. And having my children brought up here, I think they've become very diverse and, and really benefited from that as well. Yeah, I, I've been very taken by Abu Dhabi uh, and Dubai. And, and again, when my wife Lee and I came to, to Abu Dhabi, we, we found we were very welcomed. Uh, it was very uh, interesting going to the, to the great mosque, uh, but also just getting a sense of the flavor and the culture and the people. And when I was uh, an officer cadet and then an instructor at Sandhurst, a number of the Arab uh, officer cadets that were there, including the now King of Jordan, who was in, in my company with me, uh, were just so very welcoming. And there's, there's a special, as you say, there's a special, a really special bond of friendship when you're working mm -hmm. Uh, alongside people and provided you get it right you don't fall foul of insulting people by not understanding the context and the culture and and too many do as, as we were discussing beforehand if you get that right you really have an amazing time um so this is where you are now mark um but how did we get to to you being the head here at this amazing school what was yeah. the journey <laughs> take, take us back to to young young mark leopard as a, a young lad <laughs> Wow, I often question that exactly. How did I get here? Um, if I can take you back to my, my childhood, I, I, I grew up in a really loving family. Um, I'm from Harlow in Essex, uh, but all of my family were from the east end of London, uh, sort of overspill after the Second World War, as many families did. Um, and I, I arrived on the earth in 1969, so I was 52. Um, and I'd say through my primary and secondary school, I was a really happy child uh, and I felt I had a lovely childhood. My parents gave me lots of time. Um, I've got older siblings and, and nine, nine years older and 13 years older, my, my sister Janet, my brother Jimmy. Uh, so I was almost, I almost had four, four parents, if that makes sense, because of the age gap. Uh, academically, I would, I would be where many would call average average child although as an educationist i don't believe there is an average child i think everybody's different i don't believe in the average um, i've never found one yet um and, I, and i'm I, i'm a stickler for that um but we didn't have lots of money as a family we, we my parents gave us lots of time and lots of love and, and i think when i speak about my dad the thing he did was give us time and that's the one thing you can't buy so um, we holidayed each year in Cornwall in a tent and a caravan when, when we got a bit more money. Um, and we were a really close family unit. And we always tried to have meals together. Mum always ensured that whatever was happening in the world, we had a really good meal and we were well fed. Probably a bit like the military, you know, you, you march on your stomach. So I think she, she, was, she was like that. Uh, she's an amazing cook and has a passion for that uh, area. So we, we always ate well. But from an early age, I love sports. Uh, I wouldn't say I was exceptional uh, or talented. I, I started playing rugby at 10. I loved it. Um, I loved the culture, the camaraderie, the, the bits you've talked about before, the person next beside you, right and left, they're your teammates. There's, there's no hierarchy. They're, they're there with you. Um, and I think through secondary school, I was usually in the first 15 for rugby, but I wouldn't say first, first name on the list. Um, I played for Harlow Rugby Club, uh, my, my, my team still today, uh, certainly not the first name on the team sheet. And then I went to sixth form in a, in a school in Bishop Stalford, Bishop Stalford High School. And the head must have, uh, a head called uh, Ian Shaw, or as we still 
called him when he was alive headmaster. That was probably as, as, as friendly as we got in terms of titles. But as soon as I arrived at the school, I got in the first 15, and I think that was a boost to my confidence. Um, then I was made captain, and within a few months, when the, the following year's head boy, deputy head boys got uh, selected, he, he selected me as deputy head boy. And that completely bowled me over because I'd never seen that in myself. And I suppose the question is, what did he, uh, what I'm trying to get to is, what did he see? Uh, and from then on, I think that's where my leadership journey started. Uh, university, I was, uh, well, uh, yeah, university, I, I managed to get in the first team, later became captain. We won the National Cup. And I've, I've been fortunate to sort of captain teams along, but it goes back to that, that person making that decision. And, and I think sometimes we don't know what we've got in ourselves and sometimes someone from outside sees it very differently um, and and I think you asked me um, you know what what do we see I, I don't know but what did others see I, I hope they saw talent but I think that I hope they also saw humility mm. because I still don't see it in myself I still question my leadership ability not the decisions my ability every day yeah and, um, and I think I think that's a humble thing to do Mark and if I could just uh, add to what you're saying and then we could carry on with the story um two thoughts come to mind one is james cameron a colonel who looks after all of walmart's leadership development which is many thousands and thousands of people but a very successful army officer but when he was in walmart he had one boss who didn't believe in him and ran him down and thought he hadn't got enough academic qualifications he should have a doctorate and james didn't have that and, and james just knew he he was on life support and he was going to be sacked soon. But luckily for him, they found out the boss was not quite as good a leader as, as uh, he mm. thought he was. And he was removed before James was taken out. And a new boss came in who just so believed in James, gave him lots of confidence. And James said these quite powerful words. He said, I believe I can achieve anything my boss believes I can achieve. And I think don't underestimate that what they call mm. expectation theory. And it was a a, a test that you probably know of, but people listening may not, done in an American school where a headmaster like you got in two psychologists and they'd worked through what they were going to do, brought in the three teachers. They said, we've crammed your classes. This is an experiment. We've crammed your classes with the most talented, able, unusual, quirky children. And we know that you're going to get the greatest SAT scores in the school because with, with your great teaching and these talented people, we're sure you do very well. But it's an experiment. We're not telling you everything and please don't tell the parents or the children, but we'll see you in a year's time and see how the results were. Came back a year later. How was it? One of the teachers, I've been teaching for 24 years. That was the best years teaching I've ever had. The kids were great fun. We did lots of quirky and usual things. Now one or two of the kids were a little longer to catch up with their colleagues, but they're all very able. So they all did very well in the end. And uh, what are the results like? And the other teachers have said the same. And the results were like they taught, they, they, they scored the top in not only in that school, but in the state, the whole of the state of California. And um, then the headmaster said, uh, we're sorry to tell you that this was an experiment. We hadn't told you everything. And um, we have to tell you that the children were picked at random out of a hat. And the teachers went, how can this be? My God, how? And they went, aha, it's because we're three of the best teachers in the school. And he goes, and that was the other part of the experiment. <laughs> you were picked at random as well. And it's expectation theory. It's been proved many times in many different settings. But it, it, it just does remind me when, when people 
think you can achieve, realistically, but they think you can achieve. Uh, I know that myself when I've had a boss who believed me. I had General, uh, the Lord Dannett as my commanding officer. He really believed in me. He gave me a company about four years younger than I should have been given one. I was an acting major and he really believed in me. He spotted also my faults and helped me learn them. But I flourished under him. But yet when I worked for Field Marshal the Lord Inge, who was a scary head <laughs> of the army, and he'd sacked the previous two ADCs, terrorized me completely. I, I often froze up, couldn't think well, thought I was utterly stupid, which is what he thought. And I think the only reason I wasn't fired is he'd already fired two ADCs who'd left the army. <laughs> and I mean, two's, two's forgivable, but three, <laughs> it, begins to, it begins to reflect on him rather than on me. So I think even though I made the most horrendous errors, he sort of hung in there with me and, and put up with me, but never made me feel particularly good, whereas Richard Dannett did. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are, Mark. Yeah, I've, I've just jotted a couple of things down. I, I genuinely believe in talking people up to give them that boost. I, I, I think it goes back to my sports background. You want to go out on the field thinking that you, you are invincible in terms of a team. Um, and the only way you can do that is the coach really building you up because both teams would have prepared very similar, all those things. And I had I had an experience in rugby where I came off the field, hadn't had a great game. And one of the coaches said, yeah, you were no good. And that impacted me, my playing for a year. Uh, and I know it stifled me. I, I was then looking over my shoulder, not thinking I was good enough. Um, I think no glass ceilings is important. Letting people really jump for as high as they can and don't limit that jump. And there's an interesting way where you talked about sort of the, that theory. The other, the other thing is if there's an experiment where if you put fleas in a glass and put a, a cap on the glass, the fleas can jump about, call it 40 centimetres. If you put the cap on the glass, they'll hit the roof of the, the lid of the glass for so long that they learn when you take the, the cap away, they, they will never jump higher than that. Yeah, yeah. So I think you stifle and stop growth if you don't talk people up and don't allow them to be creative and make mistakes. I think mistakes are, are the best way to learn. Uh, yeah. They're not life-threatening. I think, I think I've learned more from mistakes I've made saying I really shouldn't have done that and reflected for quite some time than, than getting it all right. My, my other thing is if you're getting it right all the time, you're not stretching yourself. That's no, very, it's very true. It's like if, if you're the brightest man in the room, you're in the wrong room. Yeah, I thought that was good. But um, yeah, this this idea of, of continually learning, growing, stretching yourself. And always someone once said to me, you know, what have I learned? What am I going to do differently? Learning and action or GDD. What, what so like an, we call it an after action review in the military or in business. What was good? What was difficult and what can we do differently good difficult differently and, and I find that a really great that came from Marshall Goldsmith who's uh, one of the top coaches in the world in his 70s now a, a Kentuckian a larger than life character who trained trained <laughs> me up as a coach and I learned a lot from Marshall um let's have a look at proudest moments and darkest moments Mark what in your in your life in your career what's been a proudest moment and what did you learn from it and, and what's been a darkest difficult moment and what did you learn from that Mm. hairs on my neck have just gone up because uh, yeah uh, proudest I think I'm fortunate working in education because on a daily basis we see so many things to be proud of um, you know help, helping shape the lives of young people and that's not that's not a cliche we genuinely see it um, 
However, if I was to pick one, personally, I think it was 2015 when I was awarded an MBE for my services to education. Um, mm. Of course, I was proud to, to be recognized for that achievement, but I, I genuinely feel uh, it was an acknowledgement to the team's achievements at the time. And I was at Doha College at the time, and we'd gone through a lot of transition. And when you said earlier about people believing in you, I had a chair of, chair of governors, Julian Phillips, um, and I wasn't the head at the time, but we had there was a bit of a leadership clear out just for circumstance. And he literally turned around to me one summer and said, all the leadership team have gone, yourself and Teresa, who's still with me next door as my head of secondary, in, I brought her across from the other school, said you're leading uh, you can do it and I had no leadership experience at that level um, but what we achieved over those nine years I'm really proud of and I think it was a team achievement so to, to, to get that MBE but there's a couple of personal bits that, it, that makes it special if that's okay if I can mm, talk yeah please it. please um, we were a British embassy school um, so we had a embassy, an amb British ambassador had a representative on the board and it was a military guy it was the here we have the uh, deputy ambassador but there we had the defense attache so we had a, a gentleman called graham davis uh, raf fighter pilot um and as you can imagine he i think he flew tornadoes previously so everything he wanted to do was very quick and sharp and he didn't hang around much with with messaging um but i was i got a call if ever i got a call from graham it was either are we able to get vip parents into the school uh, students or there's a security level threat that you need to be aware of. So I was, at the time I was in the Park Plaza Victoria, uh, which looks onto the back of Buckingham Palace. And, and that evening I was gonna have dinner with my sister Janet and my nephew Ben, who were coincidentally in the garden party, the Queen's garden party, acknowledging wow. my, my nephew's contribution for competing in the, the GB Sochi Paralympics. Wow, wow. Um, I call my nephew Superman. Uh, Sorry, because he's one of my heroes. It really is. Yeah. I can tell. Um, I can tell it really gets to you. Yeah, he uh, he was born with cancer. Um, basically, told he wasn't going to live, mm. and uh, had all these challenges. And at nineteen, he broke all those barriers and skied for Great Britain. Wow! And for me. That, that, that's the making of a person, you know, not, not giving in. Um, so I got this call from Graham. I was, I was completely knocked over when he said, uh, you're going to be honoured at the Queen's, Queen's birthday honours. Um, so I, that, was, that was probably my proudest moment. And the other reason is, it's an absolute highlight is my lovely wife, Paulette, my mum and my dad were able to come to the palace and right. share the day. Um, and for those who know my background, uh, my dear dad passed away. Uh, a while ago but as a young boy who lost his mum and dad uh, at a very young age two, he was two when his dad died and 13 when his mum died living close to poverty in the east end leaving school at 14 for him to come to the palace to see his son get an mbe was really special very special sorry sorry no don't be sorry uh, you know th this is real life and and we miss people like your dad and, and he clearly had a, a very positive impact on you. Uh, I know that from our, our conversations earlier, but also I was very moved by, as you said, hairs on the back of your neck, about you talking about, was it your nephew? What was your nephew's first name? Ben, ben, ben. Sneezy. Is Ben still alive? 
Yeah, Ben. Ben's a now trained lawyer in Leeds and trying to get back into a bit more sports as well. But yeah, he, he he defied every message. You know, the sister was said there's something wrong with him when he was born. It was her third child, and they had lots of checks at John Radcliffe Hospital and everything. And um, after a while, it was he was born with neuroblastema, uh, a cancer the size of a, a grapefruit in his spine, um, and not given much chance at all and every step along the way you know he, he won't do this he, he might not survive he might not walk he might not it might not might not might not and it goes back to that you know all the no's and the you're not going to do it and he basically stuck two fingers up and said i'm doing it and at the age of eight he said to, he loves sport he, he follows in his uncle's footsteps on that respect and at the age of eight he said i'm going to be an olympian wow and, uh, I, I was always in the garden with him I don't believe, you know, as long as he's healthy, we used to play, fight, you know, do all the things that normal childhood should bring. And some people used to kid glove him. And I thought, he's fine. He's just, he's just always something different. He's, you know, that's it. He's nothing insurmountable. And the way my sister and, and brother-in-law brought him up was exactly like that. And he, he became an Olympian in Sochi. And he went, he, wow. he went from 110th in the world to 11th in the world um on his racing and he was he was phenomenal and he, he still is he is still my superman hero how old is he is ben now uh ben is oh he's 20 25 26 now um sounds one hell of a guy oh, he's, he's, he's a he's, and he's like anyone else he's he's annoying he's he's a pest at times like we all are but he's, yeah. a, he's a great person he's very kind and he he doesn't suffer fools gladly and and says it how it is and i love that with him yeah, well, well, how about this, Mark? Why don't why don't we get Ben on the show? Don't you find don't you find him inspiring? I do, and when you ask me about someone, I've, I've been racking my brains. And funny, you've just said it. Uh, I was driving in this morning, thinking if Jonathan asked me, the the one I think I would push is Ben. So I haven't even talked to you about it, and there you go. So yeah, we'll, well, let's we'll let, get you linked up. Let's get let's get Ben on the show. I think he's got a great story to tell, and uh, I found what you just said very inspiring, and I'm sure mm. others will. And we want people of all ages with all experiences. And uh, wow, uh, what, what a story already. Thank you. Um, thank you for that. Wow, well, we've both been quite moved already. We haven't, we've, only, <laughs> we've only got about 20 minutes into it. So uh, I knew it was gonna be a good one this one, Mark. Uh, Mark, what about, uh, those were some very proud moments. What about uh, a really tough moment in your life and what did you learn from that? Yeah, um, I've been really racking my brains about this one, Jonathan, if I'm honest. Um, as, as a head of the school, I think, or working in education, I think whenever there's a, a, a child in a school who loses their life, that's a dark moment. And, and I think that's, you know, a tragedy. And, you know, unfortunately, I've, I have had three children in my time in education who have passed away at school age. And that, that hits the community. But I also think that brings light um, because it pulls people together and there's a unity there. So, um, other than that, professionally, I don't feel I've had dark moments, if I'm honest. Um, I think I've been very blessed. And I think part of education is you look at the positives in it, every situation you can. But I think my darkest moment is probably, well, it's definitely when my, my dad passed away. Um, mm. I was very close to him and my mum, uh, and they've always been supportive. Uh, and we have, as I said, a very close-knit family. And I've been thinking a lot about his passing recently. Um, even though it was over five years ago. And, and what, I, what I realized is when he passed away, I think when a loved one passed away, 
most people outside of that feel you are grieving at that time and it, and i think at that time quite often you're focused on funeral arrangements how how everyone else is coping and i don't think i grieved at that time uh, about my dad passing if i'm absolutely honest but there was i could feel inside i couldn't explain it to anybody that i wasn't in a good place but i couldn't quite explain what it was and uh, one Christmas, three years after my dad passed away, my mum gave me a, my dad used to collect miners' lamps. He was a, he was a real left-wing um, left guy and he loved the miners and, and, and the big unions and all those mm -hmm. things. And, and he collected miners' lamps and he had this beautiful one that he'd restored. It, it's absolutely you know, pristine condition. Um, and my mum gave it to me as a Christmas gift and I broke down. Mm. Um, uh, at that point, I think I was uh, inconsolable, I was heartbroken, but I actually think looking back now, that was, that was my outlet of grief. Yeah. Yeah. It took three years and it took me a journey to realise that. And all the other time, I think that the three years from him passing to that outlet was actually a dark moment for me. Mm. But I didn't realise and I couldn't explain it. But uh, my mum giving me that gift was like a... It, genuinely, if I could explain it, it was physically like a pressure valve being released mm, mm. and I just let out uh, I was, it, it was a great place at the time because it's Christmas which I probably ruined it for everybody so I literally broke down but I was with all my nieces and nephews uh, my sister my brother-in-law my mum my wife and my kids mm. and I just sat in the room crying with them and, yeah. and uh, but it, it's the darkest moment but it was almost the biggest relief as well and it, mm. so it's an interesting one so I think Probably what I'm trying to say is sometimes in your darkest moments, you, you have your most enlightening moments as well. And, mm -hmm. and from then, it's, it's what I would say is if my dad's looking down on me, it's made me a better person, understanding that people grieve in different ways. Mm -hmm. and, and we can't pigeonhole it into, well, if someone's passed away, you grieve for these two weeks or it, it, it can hit any of us at any time. But for me, it was, it was a sort of three year period before that pressure was released. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely relate to that. Um, and, uh, and I think nothing nicer than being surrounded by the love of your family when you are at your most vulnerable. Um, I found recently when I was ill and I was in hospital, I happened to be in the hospital where my brother Graham worked. And uh, I might have mentioned earlier that he got stabbed by a psychopath and almost died, was it not for a lovely surgeon called Adam Brooks who saved his life, who happened to be then my surgeon when I was in the hospital a few weeks ago. And meeting all the nurses and the doctors, the porters, the restaurant staff, the cleaners, who spoke so highly of my brother, I just found myself crying because I realized how close he was to dying. And then of course we'd had David who died two months ago, age 63 we didn't see that one coming I think it was linked to that and then we'd lost my mother-in-law Marguerite who looked we looked after for three years here at home in Grantham and she died last year so it's sort of as you say you somehow store it all up yeah. and at the time you think am I a bit hard am I am I not able to feel anything this is you know in my case my brother died another brother almost got killed mother-in-law died am I not feeling anything and of course you do you feel it deeply but it just comes out at different times and in your case it was the miner's lamp 
surrounded by the love at Christmas of all the family that just opened the floodgates. And that's just fine. That's just fine. Talking about family and being surrounded by family, and particularly younger ones, one day you were, a, you were a young lad. If we went back to the future, the young Mark Leopard, age 16, and there you are now looking after 16-year-olds. Knowing what you know now and all the experience you've accumulated, all the mistakes you've made, the things you've learned from, what bit of advice would you give to your 16-year-old self about don't do this, but do do that? Yeah. Um... I think we touched on it a little bit earlier, but I, I generally think back yourself. Um, I think we all fall into the trap of listening too much to the failure voices around us, uh, telling us that things won't work, won't, won't be good enough. Um, and I don't think, well, growing up, I, I, I don't think I listened to all the optimistic, optimistic messages. And I think we should, and I think we should go for it and work the problems out as they arrive. Don't try and overthink. So as, a, as if I was gonna go back, I don't think I'd change many things, but I think I would change certain conversations and ignore them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're so right. I think we, I'm listening to a book, um, I think it's called Solve uh, for Happy, um, written by Mo uh, Gawal and, um, he lost his son when he was about 21. He died in an in operation which went wrong. But, but he's been in the search of what makes people happy and, and what can make us unhappy. And it's really made me think a lot about our default setting as a baby is to be happy. Yeah. Uh, we seem to sort of forget this and we, we listen much more. Psychologically, we listen much more to negative things. It's like Velcro. But uh, the good things that happen to us are like Teflon and it slip off very easily. And, and you have to keep focusing on what you do have rather than what you want and you haven't got. And uh, I, I think it's a, a lifetime effort to, to realize that actually happiness is the default setting. It's just we get so used to all the things that are wrong. Um, no, that's, that's very profound. Let's go around the Inspiring Leadership Compass, the eight, eight components of what make high-performing leaders and teams from the research that we've done over the last 20 years. Um, the first one is MQ, moral quotient, um, your values, your beliefs, why you do what you do, why you don't do certain things. What would be your three foundational values that still serve you well, but you were brought up on them? I, I think these have come from a very young age, actually. And I think I've just probably been able to categorise them and explain them better. But I think the, the three, and I'll explain each of them, but the three are honesty, fun and humility. Mm. Um, honesty I think you've got to be honest with yourself and others um, I, I find external honesty being honest with other people um, quite easy because I think actually if you're honest you, you, and not sugarcoat but be frank but in a fair way I think um, you see the better from others I think the, the harder thing to do is to always be honest with yourself you know things like time am I working too hard am I giving my family enough time I think we put excuses in so I think being honest with yourself is something you really have to try hard at um, so that's one of them um, you only, you only know when you've given everything or when you have to step off and sometimes we, we aren't always honest about that fun uh, I, I know your your military background and, and I do have um, a sort of black humor dark humor and I, I'm, I've often I think humor inserted into daily life is really important. Um, not taking yourself too seriously, 
Um, it's funny, I've, I've done a 360 and I've done weekend retreats where you're with a group of people and you feed back to each other afterwards. And I've been criticised and complimented in the same group for saying that I insert fun and humour into situations. Uh, I make no apology for it because I think one of the other things is be true to yourself. And I think putting humour in, um, you know, your military background, there'll, there'll be horrific things that you've seen. And but that black humour isn't disrespectful. It's to it's to help others get through things. And, and I quite I find in my leadership team when we're going through a bit of a tough time or a tough challenge, putting the odd bit of black humour in there just breaks the mood a little bit and and, and takes that tension away. Um, so I think that's important. And humility. I think be aware of any success that comes is is a team success. And don't believe. You are, you are the only factor in there. I genuinely think that you, you cannot do anything of its worth just on your own. I think you do need people around you to support. So be humility, show humility um, that it's a team effort. And I think that yeah. comes from my sports background. I, I, I very rarely say I or my, it's normally we. Even the NBA said we, our achievement, yeah. we achieved yeah. it. So. Yeah, and, and, and that fits, Mark, with Julian Brammer, who knows you well, both on from the rugby that you both love and also from the education um, that, that I said, what I'm looking for is leaders who have humility, humanity, and humor. He goes, bang, that's Mark. And um, so that's nice of him to acknowledge that. Thank you for that. Uh, the next one round is PQ, meaning and purpose quotient. What gives your life meaning? What's your Dharma, your vocation, your calling? Why, why do you do what you do, Mark? Uh, for success, but not my success. Um, working in education, it, it's, it's not personal, it's a collective, but I love seeing others develop through challenges. Um, I think it's my, my strong team ethic. Um, I think it, I genuinely think uh, I have a purpose to help create strong collective teams. Um, it's, I like to create what I call an invincible unit. Um, and you can only do that by bringing in different people with different skills. So I, I like synergy. Um, it's probably what I professionally wake up for each day. How, how can we become stronger to have a stronger outcome at the end? Um, and so, yeah, that would be my sort of my, my vocation, my calling. Mm, is, um, yeah. what, what, what can we achieve today collectively that is better than this morning? Yeah, I love it. No, that's really good. And thinking about your rugby and your sport and your love of sport, um, here you are at a young strapping lad at 52, uh, way younger than me. Um, what do you do for the health quotient, um, the, the mental health and the physical health? What, what would be a tip you'd given each of those to others that served you? I mean, as I, I was listening to Colin Powell's book and he said, it worked for me. Now, what worked for one person doesn't work for another. And in particular, this is the, the whole point about leadership, it, it, which makes it so complex. And why I've got a series of some 200 people so far, and I'm sure I'll go up into a thousand because they'll always have different stories about their leadership and experience. But what has worked for you mentally and physically in your health? Yeah, um, I think they're both interlinked, the, the mental and the physical. Um, mm -hmm. I, I exercise regularly. I, I, not as regularly as I should, but I, I do exercise regularly. I, I cycle, I swim, I run. Uh, I walk my dog each morning. Um, I, I know you do meditation. That is my meditation. I walk my dog. I maybe listen to a podcast or I just listen to the birds waking up. It's pretty dark when I walk the dog. 
but it's that untouchable moment I think is important. Um, I, I have personal coaching when it's appropriate. I think that's really important. And I, and I know that's a field that I'm going to talk to you further offline about this. Mm. Um, but I think we all need to something to help us get our minds straight and clear. Um, what I've done in work, what you said, you know, well, it worked for me. I know it doesn't work for everyone, but I'm very conscious of our staff's mental well-being. Mm. Um, and I'll touch on it in a little bit, but I've, in both schools I've worked in, I've put an email ban uh, from 5.30 in the evening till 6.30 in the morning. Parents can write to us, that's no problem because they have every right to, but they don't expect an answer until 24 hours later. Uh, but no staff send each other emails, uh, work emails, from 5.30 in the evening till 6.30 the next morning and over the weekend and holidays, unless we win the world championship or something. And all the feedback we've had from staff is that has really helped their mental wellbeing and it's helped mine. I don't have emails on my phone. Um, I, I, I want time that there is no intrusion to me. And I think that's, it may sound selfish, but it means I have more energy to give. Um, finishing rugby, I did lose that competitive aspect of my life. So I've taken up golf and now I just get frustrated with myself, but it's that competitive to do better. I want, you know, I want to get my handicap down. So I, I, I do think it's important to have time to yourself. Uh, exercise is a great one for me because no one touches you. Yeah. And, and I am, I'm very taken by your, uh, from 5.30 in the evening till 6.30 the next morning, you just don't send emails. And, and um I know as somebody who's self-employed and my wife is self-employed, she has a business as well. And we run a charity for vulnerable girls that, that Lee will get caught up. She knows this, but she'll get caught up just trying to do things for the charity and she'll, it'll creep into one in the morning, two in the morning. I go, this is not good for your health. Yeah. You've really got to get good amount of sleep and be there and fresh for people. And it's not just Lee. Um, occasionally I'll catch myself, you know, doing some late work and I go, stop it. You know, like, you wouldn't advise others to do this. So, no. so lead by example. And time and again, we have to remind ourselves of this because it's yeah. very easy, particularly when you're self-employed, that, 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 that the barriers all fall down. You just got to keep the business going and keep it, keep it alive and looking after people, helping people who reach out to you and they've got a, a trouble. Uh, great, great advice there. Thank you. EQ next, emotional and social intelligence, using your emotions intelligently. Uh, what what tip would you give on EQ that served you well, Mark? Something that served me well when I've done it well, but I don't always, and I need to keep improving, is actively listen, ask questions, and don't presume. Uh, everyone has a context or story, and I think it's the leader's job or the listener's job to facilitate that story being told, and I think it gives context to whatever situation you're in. So uh, don't try and put your slant or your perceptions on somebody else's story or, or, or uh, context and I think do, doing that is really important so when I first arrived at the school it was my second headship but I was externally appointed I actually interviewed every single member of staff and we've got two at the time we had 270 staff so it took me from September to the following Easter and I sat with everybody for 15 minutes from the senior leadership team to the cleaner and I asked them Four, questions, four or five questions. What you did at the school, what you thought was great about the school, what you thought could be better, um, and where you saw your journey going. And from that, we were able to create the school vision. And it wasn't one person, because I just gathered all that data. 
Um, mm. And I learned so much from that. To, to, I basically took seven months listening and I probably the greatest period I've learned in as well. Just, just take me through that again, because I think those are four really great questions and I'm going to take a note <laughs> of them all and I'm sure others would do too. So what you do, what you think is great about the organisation, what could make it better? Yeah, and what your plans are. Yeah. Because I, I, the reason I asked the last one is I, I, I wanted... I wanted to understand what people wanted to do. And some may think I want to leave here. Some may think I want to stay here forever. And, and the, the, the biggest question, the biggest answer I feared was someone saying, I just want to stay here forever because I just thought, I don't know if that's right. Should you? I, I don't know. But it was almost like I'm, I'm presuming I'm here. It's, I don't need to do anything more. And I, I think as a leader, we've got to try and squeeze every bit of juice and energy out of our team, also replacing it. To get the very best for those students so they were the four questions and i've got i've got a book over here i wrote it all in my moleskin and i've still got that and from that i was able to build a vision journey that the staff had created i i, I brought all the staff into the staff room and i sat them down at the end of it all and i explained um what i'd been told it wasn't what i would found it's what i've been told and it was these are our strengths these are areas we can do better and Unfortunately, at the school at the time, there was a small culture, I'm sure we'll talk about it in a little bit, uh, that was a bit toxic. Um, but I unearthed it through that, and it was, mm. it was very enlightening. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. And uh, whether it be as a platoon commander with 30, I did a similar sort of thing as a young 19-year-old. And then as a company commander, I did the same. And, and you, you get told the stories. And, and it's always very interesting, the hierarchy and the and the old chart of who's where is not the one that this is the social <laughs> hierarchy of who actually like it, it might be the cleaner who knows everybody and everybody goes to them to hear what's going on and you need to find that sort of social network and and where the web is and and the and the network spiders at the center of it to really understand what's going on <laughs> but also yeah. to identify that the, the toxic uh individuals and and if they aren't for turning and often when they're toxic they they're really just unhappy where they are help them find their happiness elsewhere yeah. Yeah. um we then go on to a closely aligned to eq is cq cultural intelligence um how you get collective uh, group working well uh, respecting diversity uh, equality and inclusion hearing like you did all people's different stories what would be a, a tip you know here you are in in abu dhabi uh, with uh, it's a real melting pot of different nationalities. Um, though uh, the UK is as well too these days, but I think I think uh, the UAE is more so. Um, what what is a tip you'd give about cultural intelligence question, diversity, equality, inclusion, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I, I think it's if it's done wrong, it can lead to problems. So if it's a simple thing to do well is take time to say hello to people in the morning. Take time to listen to people from all different backgrounds. Talk to them not about work, about their life and you know how their weekend has gone. You find out so much about what's happening in their life to maybe understand some of their behaviors. Um, and I, I, you talked about, you know, find that person. Immediately you said that, Jonathan, you know, who knows things and stuff. Cindy, who runs our coffee shop, she knows everybody. She knows not only what milk you take in your coffee and what coffee you like, she knows what you're doing as well. Um, so 
talk to them, find, show an interest in people and find out what motivates them. Because if you can find that, that's when I think you can really drive a team and, and everybody can contribute. So for me, it's, it's as simple as saying a hello and, and finding a little bit out and maybe have that conversation. You are so right, Mark. And uh, I remember um, one of the leaders I was with uh, in, uh, in, in Barclays, I was coaching him, Micah Marto. He's a real character. He now, he, now, he, he made a, a, a very successful career and was very wealthy in his own right. Now he's got a vineyard in, in Napa. Uh, in California and, and having a great life and also coaching himself as well he's turned to become a coach but but he'd come in and he'd say to anybody so how are you this morning and they'd go I'm fine he'd go no 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 how are you really and he'd stay and he'd wait and they'd yeah. go well actually I had a really bad weekend tell me more what else and 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 they would just open up and he would have great trust and respect with them and that psychological safety about how are you really? I mean, I had that with my daughter, Harriet, even Bryony, I think when they were about five and six, both of them uh, are now 27, 28, both emotions. And daddy, how are you? And I go, I'm fine. No, no, daddy, how are you really? I go, my goodness, I'm being coached by my daughter, yeah. uh, you know, naturally. And, and she got me to talk about really how I was because yeah. she was genuinely interested. And I think too many people, just go through the movement. And, and I do remember the late uh, Duke of Edinburgh as he came along the front rank at one of our parades. And he was going, where are you from? I'm from Ghana, sir. Where are you from? I'm, I'm from uh, the UAE, sir. Where, where are you from? Uh, thinking he was from another overseas country. Uh, uh, Brixton, sir. Oh, oh, right, okay. And, 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 and how are you? Uh, my mother's just died, sir. Oh, good, good, good. And where are you from? You know, like you could tell he was just going through the motions. He wasn't really interested in the answers just too, too much. Anyway, um, bouncing back from things uh, that are tough in life, um, things don't kind of work out. You get thrown all sorts of problems. I mean, the headmaster, the problems come to you because no one else can solve it. And they bring it to you. They go, this is a really grisly one. Um, it's almost like they've got a, they've got a monkey on their back and their aim is to get the monkey from their back onto your back. But sometimes yeah. they bring you bloody great gorillas on their back and you go, oh, hang on, let's just talk about this. But um, how have you picked yourself up in times of adversity and what gives you the resilience to get through, Mark? Yep. Um, 1,975 students give me the resilience to get through because if something's not working, uh, something's not going well, if it's not going well for me, it's probably not going well for the people outside. So my motivation is, is it right for those students? So that, that's a huge motivator for me. I get great motivation for the students in our care. Um, forget it's not working for me. I, I think as head of a school, um, if I detect something, and this isn't about hierarchy, but I'm probably one of the last to hear. If I'm hearing about it, it's probably a much bigger problem. Um, and it's not going to be right for the students. So I think we, what drives me is getting things solved so our students get a better deal, if I'm honest. Um, yeah, well, it's, you've triggered in me. I mean, almost 2,000 students, that's an awful lot. But also, if you haven't done this yet, and we can chat uh, later on uh, after this, but uh, the, the whole area of reverse mentoring I find very interesting. So that if each of the teachers took a mentee who was a student and perhaps it changed every term 
maybe had three sessions during that term, but they could get reverse mentored by the student. So the student might come and sit in and listen to a meeting that they run or be on one of your management boards. And the afterwards you say what worked well, what was difficult and what would make it, um, you know, we should do differently. And, and I, I find that very unusual, but very powerful. So that it's a two-way mentoring. The mentee gets benefit, but also the older headmaster or yeah. teacher learns from the pupil and they go, we don't think that way at all. Oh, right, I haven't thought of that. I don't know, what's your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I it's, it's interesting. Two things spring to mind now. I still teach. I, I, I'm not a head who doesn't teach. I, I teach leadership um, and it's a, it's a self-written course by the school. And um, I teach it to the sixth form. And I, at the, the very first session of each class, I'll say, unless you tell me otherwise, I'm going to presume I'm the best teacher in the world. And I know I'm not. So I need feedback because I can't teach how you want me to teach unless you tell me. So I'm, I'm a great believer in student feedback, student. I know the, thing, the, the, the term at the moment is student voice. So, and that's a bit of an in phrase. I, I genuinely believe students should have a say and if you took if you took it away from a school context where else wouldn't you ask the customer how they feel and the student is our ultimate customer so we've got to understand how they're receiving that um interesting we've just uh, uh, gone through a recruitment process for a head of secondary so my, my my number two in terms of the secondary school um and the students played a big part in that interview process um and some people say, well, why have you got students? They're, own, they're only young. How can they make a decision? <laughs> they won't sugarcoat it. And they, they, they're going to be the ones receiving it, not you. So they are vital. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Vital voice. Great, great, great wisdom, Mark. Um, from there, we've been talking about 360 brand quotient, pre-Q. Um, your uh, brand um, and uh, your impact, your image, uh, and what people say about you when you're not in the room. Uh, it sounds like you're big into 360. Um, mm. When did you last have a sort of 360 from about 20 different people? When was the last time? Yeah, pro probably about four or five years ago. And, and I think I'm due another one, if I'm honest. That's, yeah. that's I, I was, so with COVID, um, we have quite a thorough, uh, call it appraisal system for the head with the board. And we've, we normally have someone visit, so we haven't been able to do that yet. So I think that's, and it doesn't quite work online. You, you've got to get under the skin a little bit. So we're going to start looking at that. I'm, I'm going to speak to the board about that. So probably about five, four or five years ago. Yeah, I, I find that the most uh, humbling, but also the most fascinating part of my job mm. with a CEO or a head or whatever, to get from a whole variety of people around the world sometimes, 360 feedback on them from a phone interview that I do with them as well as an online questionnaire, the combination of a subjective and an objective, and it, and it is very powerful. Um, and sometimes it's just half an hour with each person, but it, it's a really interesting conversation. So um, yeah, let's um, uh, keep, keep going in that, in, in your development of yourself and learning from what others, how others see you. Uh, your brand is what they say about you when you're not in the room. Yeah. Uh, finally, legacy, uh, before we go into teams and then a, a book and then uh, top tip um what would you like your legacy to be in your personal life and in your work personal um i'd, I'd like to be a loving caring best friend to my wife paula um fun and loving dad to my kids uh, a great friend to those who are my friends um and genuinely a caring person if if 
well, we'll all die. If when I die, this is how people remember me, I'll be, I'll definitely be smiling wherever I head off to. That would, that would that'd be yeah. fine. Yeah, I love it. Um, professionally, if I'm absolutely honest, Jonathan, legacy doesn't concern me um, because I think whoever works in education, if you're doing it as best you can, I think you're blessed that you see your legacy every day in the students. And that's not being twee. Um, I, I've got students who are former students who are successful in their careers as Olympians, um, finance, international sport. I've got uh, the person who's in charge of organizing the Qatar World Cup, Hassan Alpawadi is one of my ex-students. Um, we've got students who are saving people's lives as doctors, inspirational educationists, all these things. For me, that's, that's my legacy. If, if I've added a, a minuscule piece of support to that person's journey, then I think anyone in education, their legacy lives on through the children. So that, that's the bit for me. Yeah, no, I, I love that. Very powerful. Okay, um, we talked earlier about toxicity in teams and mm. dealing with it, not ignoring it. What, what's your advice about turning around a, a team with a toxicity in it to a high-performing team? What would be your top tip? I'm going to challenge the question. Um, if it's use a toxic team, I think if it's toxic, it's not a team. Mm -hmm. I think you have got a, a team ethic. Uh, I, I get the question, and, and I'll, I'll come on to that. But I think um, if you if you want a high-performing team, and if there's people who who maybe don't have the ability, but they, they have the will, that's different. But toxicity, I think you've got to cut it out. I just think it has to go. Um, if you try to support, try to, and I think one of my many areas, uh, you mentioned another one, EBI, even better if, that's one we use in education. I know you mentioned that on a previous podcast. So for myself, my even better if is don't take too long. And I think I do at times, I think, uh, I, I feel I'm a positive person. Uh, I'd like to think I'm kind. I wouldn't want people to think mistake kindness for weakness, but I do think sometimes I give people too long on that. So, but if I could be firmer on that, I think toxicity has to be cut out fairly yeah. clinically. If I'm yeah, honest. yeah, and and a bit of advice I had from an, a leader, which I've always remembered, is uh, when I had a problem as a managing director, he said, "What does he know about this person now?" That you're going to find out in 12 months time when you finally do act i said i know now they're never going to make it they're always going to their attitude stinks they might be very knowledgeable and very experienced but their attitude is poisoning the rest of us he goes so why are you waiting 12 months you know it now um, which was was great advice okay um finally on to uh we talked about legacy i think you were talking about james kerr and legacy was one of your books yeah. um uh, is that a favorite for you yeah, it is. It's not because of the sport. Um, I think it's the cultural aspect of the book. I think it's the look, it's legacy talks about I maybe not this weekend. I don't know when this podcast will go out, but obviously this weekend the All Blacks haven't done too well. But um, they're the they're the greatest team in any sport, I think, um, consistently. Um, and this book talks about the culture, the challenge, ethics, and much more. And, and a good friend of mine, Neil Thomas, who's working in the UK now. Um, gave it to me when I was leaving my last role, and and the bit of, he directed me to chapter six, which <laughs> is titled Fanhao, and Fanhao means the extended family or community. But each of the chapters has a, a subheading. And that chapter subheading, excuse my language, says 
no dickheads. Um, <laughs> you know, which basically going. goes back to your previous question about toxicity. So, yeah, um, yeah it's, it's a great book. Uh, you know, it's about getting the right people on the buses, the Jim Collins and all these. But I, I just think um, that book talks about superstars, but with humility, um, not superstars who are about themselves. And I think that sums up the All Blacks, if I'm honest. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's beautifully done. Great. So, Mark, thank you. This is really exciting. Uh, let's introduce yourself again, if you would, and give us your final two-minute top tip. Jonathan, thanks very much. So, my name is Mark Leffard, uh, headmaster of the Bruce Gouwak Bayrats. Uh, my top tip, uh, I've learned this the hard way, uh, and it can impact on those around you. So, my top tip is look after yourself. Um, you cannot pour from an empty bowl. Make sure that your own well-being is looked after first so that you can give all that time and energy to support others. It may sound selfish, but don't feel guilty about preserving yourself as then you have the energy and the capacity to make others shine. And I think that is one aspect. My other thought uh, is do not be intimidated by silence. Let others fill the gap with their noise and you will learn things. If you fill it with yours, you don't learn anything. Mm. Great wisdom. And I, I really share with that one. As soon as you open your mouth, you learn nothing new. Um, Mark Leppard, MBE, thank you very much indeed. It's been a real privilege having you on the series. And I know a lot of people will enjoy hearing your wisdom, your stories and your experience. Thank you. Thanks, Jonathan. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, Get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you. <laughs>